it's a nightmare that never ends. A nightmare of rape, murder, of unspeakable evil to the young, to the old, to pregnant women and babies. A nightmare that is all too real. What does the Bible say about the Israel-Palestine conflict? Or more specifically, what does the New Testament say about the Christian's posture towards the Holy Land? Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Jesus and the Land, the New Testament challenge to Holy Land Theology by Gary M. Birch, 168 pages published by Baker Academic in April 2010, available in Amazon Kindle for $15.99, and it was $3.99 last month, December, in Logos. So if you miss that deal, then you just have to get it for $15.99 elsewhere. Gary M. Burge is a New Testament scholar who has written, amongst many things, extensive commentaries on the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. I have reviewed his uh, commentary on the Letters of John from the NIV Application Commentary series, so you can have a look at that if you want. Um, So from there, I know what to expect on his uh, views on modern-day Israel. If you don't know them, you will certainly know his views by the end of this review. Today's book was published in 2010, but it might as well have been published today. The conflict in Israel-Palestine is ongoing, and it's probably worse than ever. The Jewish people and the Palestinians are still, after so many decades, are still making exclusive claims to the land. The land is mine, it's not yours. That's what they both say. In his introduction, Birch writes, I quote, This book asks how Christians should understand these competing land claims. Given our theological framework, what is the relationship between land and theology in the New Testament? What did Jesus and the New Testament writers think about the territorial claims of ancient Israel? Did they retain the view of the sanctity of Jerusalem and its temple? Were they rethinking the relationship between faith and locale? Or were they confident that a sacred place was still to be held for believers? End quote. Bird starts the book in the Old Testament, in the time when God promised Abraham, To your descendants I give this land. This land is promised. Birch then charts the relationship of the children of Abraham to the land from the promise to the conquest, from the warning of Israel to the exile to the return from exile. We see that the Old Testament does not portray the Holy Land as simply prime real estate. Birch writes, While it will be a good land, it will not be an easy land. This will be a land that demands faith, Far from being paradise, this is a land that will hone a people. For instance, without a central river system, agriculture must rely on God, who supplies the land with water through rainfall. Culturally, the land will not be empty, but will be filled with Canaanites and others who will tempt Israel to compromise its unique commitment to God. And politically, 
armies moving from Egypt to Mesopotamia will run through this land as if it were a highway, and Israel will be forced to decide whether its security will be found in local treaties and alliances or in God, who promises to sustain its welfare. End quote. Throughout the book, Birch makes his point from Scripture. For example, I quote here, Before Israel enters the land under Joshua's leadership, Deuteronomy records Moses' final words of encouragement and warning to the people. Here he then quotes Deuteronomy 4.25-27, When you have had children and children's children and become complacent in the land, if you act corruptly by making an idol in the form of anything, thus doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. Only a few of you will be left among the nations where the Lord will lead you. Uh, Birch then uh, comments on this uh, passage. The severity of these words is stunning. This land is not simply a gift the giver has forgotten. It is a gift that has expectations for covenant holiness and justice. God is watching this land. He has personal expectations for this land. It is a land that should evoke memories of his own holiness. Birch covers the whole Old Testament in one, just one chapter. And before he goes into the New Testament, uh, Birch describes the world of the diaspora Jews through the writings of Philo, was it Philo and Josephus. And the diaspora, so the scattered Jews scattered all over the place, um, what were they doing, what was happening during this time? And for one thing, I quote, More Jews were living outside the Holy Land than they were living in it. And this brought major implications to Jewish thinking and perspective. End quote. And I thought this was a very interesting chapter because uh, it surprised me that the Jewish people, before Christians came to the scene, were already moving the theological focus away from the land. So this was happening not because Christians uh, introduced this, but because the Jews were living outside of the Holy Land. So the Jews who were born outside of Israel, who married, did business, and made a life outside of the Holy Land, were still Jews in their customs and relationships. They were still making pilgrimages to Jerusalem, still paying the temple tax, and many wanted to be buried in the Holy Land. And here's the interesting thing. Birch tells us, and I would say quite confidently and persuasively, that many did not believe that to be a good Jew meant to rebel against the Romans, retake the temple, and reconstitute the kingdom of Israel. And we see this even in the Gospels. And that brings us to chapter 3, Jesus and the Lamb, and chapter 4, the fourth Gospel and the Lamb. As I mentioned before, Birch is a Johannine uh, scholar, so it makes sense for him to dedicate an entire chapter for the fourth gospel. That is his expertise, and uh, we benefit from his expertise by not lumping all four of the gospels together. So in these uh, two chapters, um, which is basically the, the gospel chapters uh, in this book, God, Birch makes an incredibly persuasive case for how Jesus of the gospels must have thought of territorial theology. 
Um, at one point, uh, Birch notes, I quote, First, Jesus is surprisingly silent with regard to the territorial aspirations and politics of his day. The national ambitions of Judaism under Rome constantly pressed Jewish leadership to respond. Either Judea was capitulating to the occupation, or Judea had to organize to defeat it. However, Jesus is oddly silent about the debate. Moreover, Jesus is curiously receptive to contact with the occupiers. In Matthew 8, verse 5 to 13, he responds to the request of a Roman centurion whose valued servant was ill. Here we find no repulsion of the soldier, no condemnation of Gentiles, but rather we find receptivity and welcome. He says of the Roman, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. What emerges is a general impression that Israel's national ambitions tied to reclaiming the land live on the margin of Jesus' thinking. End quote. If Christians are to give the land of Israel-Palestine some kind of special treatment, whatever that means, then we should get our cue from Jesus. But if Jesus did not care much for the dirt under his feet, then should we? Do you remember how the Pharisees and Herodians asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We hear Jesus give the famous answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Now, Birch tells us here that, I quote, we can fairly interpret this as a refusal to support the tax revolt. Later, he, uh, Birch tells us, the kingdom Jesus advocated could not be co-opted by a nationalistic movement that sought to win back the land by force. In one section, Birch prepares a list of seven critical passages. I can't go through them one by one, but I do want to share two of them. And these are not the most persuasive, but these are the most speculative. Okay, So not something that we would necessarily agree uh, wholeheartedly or even partially with. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared, The meek shall inherit the earth. The earth here can be translated as the land. And Birch tells us that what would a Jew think when the words inherit and land come up? Well, he would be thinking of the holy land. And who does Jesus say will inherit the land? The meek, not the strong. Another passage, in Matthew 25, verse 14 to 30, a rich, man, a rich man entrusts three servants with cash. Two of the servants invest and make a profit, but the third buries the, land, uh, the money in the ground. As Birch suggests, ground can be translated as land. Is this parable a cautionary tale against territorial theology? Now, here's the thing, and this is the reason why I shared the most uh, speculative, I would say the most improbable one, because Birch himself admits, I quote, Such an interpretation is far from certain, since it requires an allegorizing of the story that is foreign and arbitrary to the story itself. End quote. So, when the writer is willing to point out that his own point here is weak, more credit to him. There are too many people who just make too much out of too little, and that makes me lose respect because they are just uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel or however you want to put it. There is really nothing there, and they're making it 
seem like it is a, a done deal. Whereas in this case, he tells us that these are some of the passages and there are some very, very convincing ones, including the ones I told you about the centurion and so on, where you can see Jesus's uh, uh, say attitude or posture towards the territory of the Holy Land. But then when Birch gives us some speculative ones, it just adds, I would say, a bit of flavor and some thought-provoking as we think about how the people listening would receive it. But at the same time, he does not make too much of a deal of it. So I really respect him for doing that. And I would say it uh, makes his case stronger. So we get the same level of insight because uh, I think most of us, when we read the Bible, we don't really read with the land in mind. So this is the insight aspect. And he gives, and Birch gives us the same level of care. So he doesn't make much out of little. And he does this uh, in the later chapters, a sweeping survey of land theology in Acts, Galatians, Romans, Hebrews, and Revelation. This uh, excerpt I'm about to read is representative of his conclusions. I quote, At no point do the earliest Christians view the Holy Land as a locus of divine activity to which the people of the Roman Empire must be drawn. They do not promote the Holy Land either for the Jew or for the Christian as a vital aspect of faith. No diaspora Jew or pagan Roman is converted and then reminded of the importance of the Holy Land. The early Christians possessed no territorial theology. Early Christian preaching is utterly uninterested in a Jewish eschatology devoted to the restoration of the land. The kingdom of Christ began in Judea and is historically anchored there, but it is not tethered to a political realization of that kingdom in the Holy Land. Echoing the message of the Gospels, the praxis of the church betrays its theological commitments. Christians will find in Christ what Judaism had sought in the land. End quote. As I grow to appreciate from this book, Jerusalem and the surrounding lands are important. Burge does not diminish their importance, but they are important historically, not theologically. Historically, because Jerusalem is not Shangri-La, it actually exists. Abraham, David, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Peter, and Paul walked on the same dust Christian tourists walk on today. The same dust I observe that Israel and Palestine spilled blood for. Now, when I make my comment about Israel and Palestine, or make my comment on the conflict, those are my comments, because as I read um, Burgess' analysis and conclusions, in uh, these chapters, I marvel not just in what he says, but in what he does not say. He does not say anything about the current Israel-Palestine conflict, especially when he could so easily just make a slight remark. For example, when he explains how the meek shall inherit the earth, it would have been so easy to take a shot at Christian Zionist by just asking, when Israeli settlers take the land, are they meek? Now, Birch mentions settlers once in the introduction to give a background on the topic. Then he says nothing about them, nothing about the Israelis or the Palestines um, in our modern-day context for the next seven chapters. 
And he only mentions about the conflict and extensively uh, in the last chapter, chapter 8, where he discusses modern-day Israel, or rather the relationship of the land to the church today. Now, this approach to separate biblical interpretation from contemporary application respects the reader. I don't need to consider the righteousness of a particular cause, the cause of the writer. I just need to consider whether his interpretation for this Bible passage is right or not. I don't need to wonder if uh, the way he connects our 21st century concerns with the writings of 1st century Christians, uh, is, it, is it valid? For if we interpret the passage properly, we will know that 1st century Christians think about the land a lot, far more than we do. They see Romans marching up and down every day. So the absence of the modern-day conflict in the earlier chapters, um, I would say, does not mean the author is detached. Far from it. It is obvious he has strong passions. But he aims to develop his theology first before applying the, the theology to his passions, to his concerns. So in chapter 8, um, there is one part here where he writes, Numerous writers have critiqued this Holy Land movement extensively and found in its bold claims to territory, which is linked to eschatology, an angry and dangerous synthesis of theology and politics. Engaging their writings directly is difficult because it is a populist movement fueled by preachers who use its schema evangelistically. No carefully argued theological study has come from within its own ranks. No New Testament scholar has written in its defense. Its advocacy groups, such as Christians United for Israel and Camera, are generally run by political activists. Its books come from the pens of popular television preachers or lobbyists. I have been invited to debate some of their leaders and find myself with people who have no training in theology. How can such a widespread movement in the church be successful? without a thoughtful theological undergirding. He then continues with a scathing critique, which I can only give you the headings without the detail. So let me just give you the headings now. Number one, these guys, they fail to point out the indisputable biblical motif that land promise is strictly tied to covenant fidelity. So they need to be faithful, they need to be holy in order to keep the land. Number two, they use the prophets to build their worldview, but they fail to hear what else the prophets had to say. Ah, the prophets have much to say about, again, being how you're supposed to behave in the land and the judgments and uh, the blessings that come with it. Number three, they need to call Israel to live by biblical standards of life. The alien and sojourner should be protected because Israel was an alien and sojourner in Egypt. That's what the Bible says. Number four, they are naive in applying the historic text of Israel's ancient history to modern Israel. There is no one-to-one -one correspondence. We should not read whatever that's happening today and then just uh, match it one-to-one -one with whatever happened many thousand years ago. Number five, they fail to think Christianly about the subject of theology and the land. And here he 
tells us about a scholar who affirmed Zionism from the Old Testament. But then uh, Birch then points out how this same scholar neglected to bring the New Testament to bear. Because if uh, we read the New Testament, then the conclusions made would be different. And this brings me to my critique on the book. Now, the first one. The, f- the subtitle of the book is The New Testament Challenge to Holy Land Theology. But if one wants to make a death blow to Holy Land Theology, uh, we need as rigorous an interpretation of the Old Testament as well. Um, he focuses a lot on the New Testament because he is a New Testament scholar. But we need an Old Testament scholar writing alongside him. Now, that book would be thicker. Right now, it's easy to read at 168 pages. But one chapter for the Old Testament is just far too short. It's not enough to convince supporters of Holy Land theology who quote extensively from the Old, the Old Testament. Now, the reason why Bush does this is because um, many times uh, the supporters would not consider the New Testament. So I understand that, and that's why this book is so great. But at the same time, Christians at the pulpit and the pew need help to make sense of the Old Testament text. It's not enough to just say that, uh, that to respond to Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament verses, by just repeating what the New Testament text says. As it is, it does look like the Old Testament and New Testament are shouting over each other. Having said that, I'm not saying that Birch does not deal with the OT verses. I'm saying that he does not deal with them enough. His priority for this book, which he calls out in the cover, is the New Testament, because that's his area of expertise. My second criticism is only a criticism, because he did not address the question that emerged in my mind as I read his conclusions. Basically, Birch tells us that territorial theology is wrong, because Jesus and the New Testament writers had shifted the attention away from the land, beneath their feet, to the kingdom of God that is uh, within us, that is to come. But is it possible that it's really a matter of, let's say, timing? For example, Jesus said that he was sent only to the lost children of Israel, and with some exceptions, he kept to a tight area. Jesus did not preach in Athens, heal in Malta, or die in Rome. If we only had the Gospels and didn't have Acts or the Epistles, we could conclude that the Gospel is limited to where Jesus was walking. Aha, someone says, and that is why we have Acts and the Epistles. Which is my point. Perhaps there is something in the Old Testament that we have not really read properly or interpret properly that would support some form of Holy Land theology, some form that would give a basis to understand the Jewish people to restore that land in some form. For example, um, John the Baptist actually asked Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another guy? He asked that because Jesus did not fulfill many of the prophecies expected of the Messiah, and John the Baptist was confused. So maybe we are also confused. Maybe there are remaining Old Testament prophecies that will be fulfilled in a time or manner that we do not expect, yet still consistent with what Birch tells us in his book here. In short, what I'm asking is, 
Does Berger's interpretation necessarily exclude territorial theology? Can both exist alongside each other just in some different periods or in some different form? Now, based on my reading of this book, I think I know what Berger's answer would be, and that's no. <laughs> uh, you cannot have both. Um, but I would have liked to know uh, definitively if uh, a two-state solution can exist. Um, because again, if we do not have an Old Testament exposition, there is the risk that you are right does not necessarily mean that I am wrong. It's possible that both can be right in a different way. Now, I say all this, and I'll tip my hand right now, because I'm as convinced as I can be that Burgess' ex approach, exposition, analysis, and conclusions, they are all correct. I always wish I had the time and ability to study the theological framework behind the Israel-Palestine conflict. And if I have half the ability of Birch, I would have attempted what he did. Just go through scripture, expound it, arrive at the conclusion that, that informs us on how we are to understand the world today, how we are to understand the conflict today. And I found myself, as I read page after page, agreeing with so much with what he wrote that I questioned myself, am I living in the same echo chamber as Gary Birch? So near the end of the book, I told myself that if I wanted to make sure that my position here is stress-tested and I'm not just carried along by a guy who confirms all my biases, I need to read a good book that argues the opposite. And what do you know? Birch, at the end of the book, gives us a long list of books for further readings. One list, there are two lists actually. One list is for theological books. And he introduces those books with this. There have been a limited number of treatments of the land motif in, in the Bible. Many work directly on the problem of land conflict in Israel-Palestine and then provide theological reflection as a feature of the ethical discussion. Others, Jewish and Palestinian writers, inevitably express their own narratives within the struggle. End quote. So if you notice that's a different way, that's a different approach from Birch. These guys they talk about the problem, then they go to the Bible. But Birch is talking about the Bible, looks at the Bible first, then talks about the problem. Another list uh, that he gives us is on the modern-day conflict itself. So it's less on the theolo theological background. And here he recommends books from both sides of the debate, written among many. This very interesting list. You have an ex-American president, Jimmy Carter. You have the current Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. You have a Palestinian Lutheran pastor, and many more. And, they'll, and the short uh, descriptions he gives on these books make for very um, uh, attractive to read because very interesting backgrounds. Some of them struggling through the land, some of them just uh, very pro or very anti-Israel. Uh, so very, very good list in that you have two sides of the debate um, given to us. In conclusion, uh, to the Christian who has an opinion on the Israel-Palestinian conflict, and that may be whichever way it might be. I won't say that you must read this book, but I would say that you must, everyone must, have a theological underpinning for your opinion. Your opinion needs to be informed by both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
So we should all just refrain from just uh, quoting Old Testament passages um, to support our views on the conflict on the ground. We also need to understand what does the New Testament say. And if you want to be as well informed as you can be on this issue, which is often played on Christian sentiments, then I would recommend Jesus and the Land, the New Testament Challenge to Holy Land Theology by Gary M. Birch. It's just as relevant as it was the day it was published 14 years ago, which is one of the rare cases where the writer must wish that his book was less relevant today. Upon hearing today's review, um, there are maybe some would think that I am very soft on Palestine or I'm pro-Palestine or anti-Israel or whatever it may be, and uh, that makes for very um, makes it very difficult to explain a person's position in as short a time because that is not the point of today's review. But I would say that um, regardless of anyone's position on the Israel-Palestinian conflict. We, we would, as Christians, come away understanding a bit more and tempering it because there is still a sense of justice. And I think that on both sides, there are issues, there are injustices that need to be addressed. So where there is wrong, as Christians, we should point it out and seek to for redress. There should be repentance. There should be a movement towards correcting any wrongs. And that will be on both sides. Christians are interested in the truth and less on, uh, okay, I can't think of a better word, manipulation. Because I am also concerned that some people, uh, as we can see from the other side, because uh, we would accuse the other side where we see manipulation. People are propaganda, there, is, there are lies, there are uh, disinformation. And we can see it very clearly when we're looking at the other side, but it's also happening on this side. So we should be aware of that. And sometimes I know it's so difficult. That's why I appreciate any book that actually tries to address it, uh, preferably from the Bible. So we try to hear what God says so that we can understand what the world says and the lies the world says. <laughs> so with that, I really appreciate this book and I wholly uh Totally recommend this book to everyone. This is a reading and reader's review of Jesus and the Land by Gary M. Birch. 168 pages published by Baker Academic in April 2010. It's available in Amazon Kindle for $15.99. And as I said, it used to be $3.99 when it was out in a deal in, uh, in Logos last month. I am currently reading the Logos free book. So if you missed the deal before, now hopefully you don't miss the deal now. The Logos free book for January is The Legacy of John Calvin, His Influence on the Modern World by David W. Hall. If you're predestined to listen to my review, I will see you soon. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <music>